So if you're new with us, um, we've been trucking through the book of Genesis together. We moved into a new building uh, and, and wanted to look at the beginning um, and to be recentered uh, and, and reframed really through God's design. And so uh, what we've been looking at over the last several weeks is we looked at the, the first week we looked at what God was doing before he made anything. And what we discovered is that God had a plan within and of himself, an eternal covenant as the book of Hebrews says, where he planned to save the world through Jesus Christ before he ever made anything. And what we discovered is that gives us such comfort today when our lives go awry that we see that God had us from the beginning. We also looked at the days of creation, and what we realized about the days of creation was this, is that God has been moving from, from the chaos of, of the, the unformed matter of the world, bringing order, but not only bringing order, but bringing fullness. And not only has he been taking us from chaos to order to fullness in creation, but he's also been doing it in our lives as well, that you were made for fullness with God. So today what we're looking at is the last day of creation. It's found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So let's turn there together and read it. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. See, what we see in this passage is that God is trying to communicate something to us about his nature. As Americans, we look at the seven-day creation and we're like, hey, he didn't get anything done that day. Why is that in here, right? Am I preaching? Okay, just checking. Uh, we look at that and we're like, hey, you know, what's going on with that? And I want to encourage you to really consider the design of God and how we relate to our work through rest. Because I think this is really the, the, the linchpin for us and how to work from a place of rest and enjoy God more and more. The first year that I moved to Atlanta was not a good year for me. It was eight or nine years ago. And um, I just, I was just, I just had chaos in my soul. I was, felt exposed, insecure, faithless. I felt called to plant a church, but not even close to equipped. And there was this man that came into my life that began to disciple me. His name was Monty Starks, great dude. He's, I think he's even preached at our church before. But Monty uh, had this th three other guys, there was four of us total, he was discipling. And uh, like to start off our year, we went on this retreat together. And so we knew we were going somewhere, we didn't know where. So we get in the car and uh, he doesn't give us any details. He just starts driving and driving and driving. Three and a half hours into the retreat, we're still driving and we veer off of I-65 North somewhere in Alabama, all right? I'm sorry I said that word, Georgia fans. Really sorry about that. I was, I was, I was, it was too soon. And anyway, we pull off Coleman, Alabama, and, uh, and we pull into uh, this place that is called St. Bernard Abbey. We're at a monastery. Monty opens up the glove box. We get out of the car. He says, put your phone, put your keys, and put your wallet in the glove box. He gives us a key and a sheet of instructions. He says, we're on a silent retreat. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into, right? We're at a monastery, silent retreat. He said, the only time that you can talk is when you go to, you know, Vespers morning and evening prayer with the monks. So you can sing then. That's it. 
And so what began to happen after that is about 36 hours of complete turmoil in my soul. My soul was so noisy and it took me 36 hours to settle, settle down just enough to be able to hear anything at all. You know, silence does that, right? Periods of silence and solitude give us a check on what's going on in our soul. And I was, I was so far from God at that moment that I couldn't even, I didn't even know where to go in God's word. So I did one of these things that sometimes maybe you do where you go like this, speak to me, God, right? Maybe you've done that before. And he did. He took me to Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. So I want you to turn there if you've got a Bible. Uh, Isaiah 30, 15. So what's happening here is that uh, Isaiah is prophesying. The Israelites are convinced that life is better in Egypt, all right? And, uh, and so they're, you know, they're, they're living disobediently. And here's what, here's what we see is that um, we see that this is actually a story about our own lives and how we're all looking for rest and striking out in all the wrong places. Here's what he says. He says, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. In returning, that word also means repenting. So in repenting and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling the Holy Spirit has used this verse in my life not to change the work that I do, but to change the way that I relate to the work that I do. And my question for you today is this, will you be willing to enter into the rest that you were designed for? Our big idea comes from a quote from St. Augustine, written about 1,600 years ago in his work, Confessions. And it's this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. So here's where we're going today as we look at Genesis 2. We're going to look at the design of rest. We're going to look at the dysfunction of rest. And we're going to look at how to return to rest. So let's look at the design of rest, Genesis 2, 1 through 3 that we just read. So we see that the seventh day of creation, uh, that what God is showing us here is his design before there's ever any sin in the world. That, that God did not rest because he was tired, okay? He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested and made it a part of creation's rhythm to show us how we are to operate and function in our relationship with him and in our relationship to the work that we do in this world. But rest, it seems like weakness to us, doesn't it? I mean, think about this. And I think this impacts younger people especially. My daughter is in kindergarten, and they do this thing that I think sounds amazing that she absolutely hates. Nap time. She takes her little towel. She lays up. She hates it. It's the worst part of the day for her. It sounds like heaven to me. Yeah, you get out of a lunch meeting, yeah, 30-minute nap time required. Got to do it, right? So... You know, but, but it's, it's funny. So you, then you get into your 20s and your 30s and you pride yourself on running on three hours of sleep and, and, a, and a case of Red Bulls. It's no way to live. We're operating outside of design. But then you talk to someone's older, your grandparents maybe. And they're like, hey, I slept eight hours last night and I needed a two-hour nap and it was awesome, right? So you, there's, we just have this conflict with how we relate to rest and how we understand it. But what we see is that God has shaped creation around rest, so the Sabbath day in Jewish culture was a, was a Saturday, 
And if you've ever been to Israel before and you're there on a Saturday, the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem is absolutely shut down for Shabbat, which is the Sabbath day. I mean, even the elevators that you get on are on what they call Shabbat mode. You can't even push a button on the elevator. You have to stop at every floor on the way up. It takes a lot longer. But they, they are intense about inconvenience. Even when you look at the design of the temple, if you've ever been there before, the steps are irregularly shaped, uh, heights and depths of the steps, so that you can't just, you know, uh, in in a monotonous fashion, just kind of walk down the steps. You have to think about how you're stepping as you go into worship, as you go to worship. That sounds like, you know, like OSHA would have so many problems with that. You know, you can't can't build things like that because we're all efficient here, right? But what you see in, 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 in the scriptures is that there's this model of rest, not only in Jewish culture, but also in, in, in Christian culture. We, we don't c- celebrate Sabbath on Saturday. Some Christians do, most don't. Most of them celebrate on what we call the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Book of Acts talks to us about that. But the, the day doesn't matter as much except for the fact that you do rest. But culturally, we seem to be most considered with bigger faster, stronger, more efficient. Maybe we can build a city that never sleeps, but that's to live outside of God's design. There's this story about this guy, this, this pastor in California, his name's John Ortberg. He's, you probably have a book by him on your shelf or something. Uh, he's an author, pastor, big church. He has this mentor. His name is Dallas Willard, who passed away a couple years ago. And, and he, he was meeting with his mentor, Dallas, and he says, hey, Dallas, how can I stay healthy and keep doing what I'm doing? And Dallas paused for a second, and this hit me like a ton of bricks. He said, John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Before the fall, church, all there was was rest. There was work, but work was done from rest, not for rest. And there's something tremendously broken in how we understand our work and in our rest, especially in our context today, that makes this ever applicable for us today. See, in Genesis 2, God takes rest, but it's a rest, it's a rest in his accomplishments. He stops and he looks back and he enjoys what he's created. There was, you know, there was work, but it was from a place of rest. You know, it's, it's not just about, for God, it's not just about ceasing from activity, but it's actually like a deep rest. And for us, the question for us is, is when you think about rest, you think about sleep probably. It's more than that, but it's not less. But everybody can lay down, but not everybody can sleep. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you have this little thing on your, your, uh, your wrist. I, I, I went back to the dumb watch, uh, but because the smartwatch was too smart for me. It was too convicting. You, you try to go to sleep at night, you wake up in the morning, you see how many times you woke up. It's like condemnation as soon as you wake up in the morning, right? You look at, you're not resting, you're not sleeping. And, and you know what sleep takes? And I get it, there's, people have medical conditions that make it hard for them to sleep. I'm not, I'm not trying to pass along guilt there, but what I'm just saying is this, is that resting takes faith. It takes faith to rest. When you think about sleep, you know, when you think about your own rest, you might be discouraged, you might have difficulty, but there's really no greater validity of, of someone grasping, truly grasping saving faith than the quality of your rest. Not the quantity of how much you try to rest, but how you actually do rest. 
To see real faith in action is to see a person so enamored with the person and work of Jesus Christ and who he is that he stops, that he relinquishes control, and he trusts God with his relationships, with his time, and with his money. That's what it means to have the rest of God present in your life. To see a father lead his family in how to rest well for God's glory. To teach them that our family functions best when we set a day aside to pursue King Jesus. To see a self-employed person in our church say, look, I could make more money today. I could. But Jesus matters more to me than that. that that's to begin to get it. That's to begin to get the rest that God promises to us. But to live within this design will require faith. Because we are forced to come to this reality. We're confronted with it. This reality that we are not limitless. That we're not and we never have been. And anytime we believe that we are, we're in sin. When we believe that we can, we can push past the thresholds of limits that God's put in our lives. You know what happens when we continue to live that way for an extended period of time? We, we wind up living anxious lives. We wind up self-medicating in all kinds of ways simply because we're living outside of God's design for our lives. The American pace of life is a facade that's sucking the church's soul dry. But God invites us to, be slow, to slow down enough not to be numb. So let's look a little bit deeper on what's going on with the dysfunction of our rest. I call it the restless heart syndrome. Um, so here's how most of us think about rest, okay? Uh, we push and we push and we push and we push. This is how we think about it, okay? It's like work, 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 work. Oh, that vacation's coming. I can't wait for it to get here. I'm just going to keep pushing. And then we actually get to the vacation that we have been planning to take. But we're so addicted to food and drink and all kinds of other things that we're coming in on fumes like an airplane out of gas to the runway, and then, just because we don't want to make our boss angry, we take our laptop and our cell phone on the vacation that we've been waiting for. Am I preaching to anybody? Okay, this is what we do. We let the culture tell us how to rest. We don't let the spirit. But God has designed you for something different than this. And he did it before the fall ever happened. And here's what it is. It's a, it's a Sabbath rhythm. It's a sacred rhythm. A rhythm where you are working from rest in your life. Not just a nap, but you're working from a place of rest. Not striving after something, looking after something more than Jesus. This is what God has designed you for. That we are, we are human beings. We are image bearers of God. We are not machines. And if we think that we are machines, we're going to live lives that, that are, we're going we're gonna to pay for the consequences of the, the pace that we run. I mean, when we live outside of the rhythm of a Sabbath day, what we're believing is that we think that we can functionally live outside of God's design and not be affected by it. That we can functionally, because we're Americans, disobey God, not take a sacred rhythm of Sabbath, and that our lives won't be affected, that our relationships won't be affected. And it's a lie. It's a flat-out lie. So, okay, preacher, you've been telling me a lot of bad news. Can we get to the good news? Yes, let's look to Hebrews 4 now. The writer of Hebrews leans into this for us and connects the dots between Genesis chapter 2, the rest that God takes the Sabbath day, the rest that we're commanded to take, and really what our hearts are actually after. He connects all those things together for us. So I'm going to read a rather lengthy passage here, 
the first 10 verses, and then we're going to kind of go back through it and, and hit it um, as we look at the dysfunction of our rest. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You see, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the rest of God in a really big picture, not just a micro one in seven day picture, but actually what living in the design of God is. He calls it the rest of God. To, to, to live with God in relationship with him is living in his rest is what, he, is what he's describing here. And he says, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. For we who have believed enter that rest, he says. And he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, so what's he getting to here? Verse six. Therefore, it remains for some to enter, and for those who formerly received the good news, they failed to enter it, and you see this theme, because they disobeyed, because they didn't obey what God showed them. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying that through David so long afterward, in those words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And what he means by this is that anytime we hear God's word, and we just say, yeah, I'm good, and we just go on with our life, it seems like you're unaffected by it, but something deep inside of you is hardening your heart. And it's hardening against God's word, which is God's will and God's best for our lives. So we become harder and harder and harder. And you know, the harder that a heart gets that belongs to God, you know what happens? The harder the break is. He is so passionately in love with his creation, his image bearers, he will do whatever it takes to break your hard heart. Writer goes on to say this, for if Joshua had given them rest, he's talking about entering into the promised land through Joshua, God would not have spoken of another day later on. In other words, if the Israelites would have gotten what it means to live in the rest of God, we wouldn't need a command for it. That's what he's saying. That the command came because we don't get it. We don't trust it. We don't live in it. So then there remains, and this, these are the key two verses here, verses 9 and 10, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the writer of Hebrews is describing this problem that we all have and most of, them don't, most of us don't know we have it or don't know how to fix it. That we need the rest that only God has the power to give, but we either don't know how to get it or we don't, know how, we don't have the faith to live in it. And he says, here's the common denominator. Here's the problem of why we don't get it. While we're, you know, hurried, exhausted, joyless. He says it's unbelief. It's unbelief in what God's word says. And that unbelief manifests itself in disobedience in a hard heart. He says the promise still stands for rest. Like that is still something God has for you, that life of rest, but they don't enter it. They don't enter it on earth or in eternity, but the promise is for both. The promise is for now and for forever. That's the promise that God gives us for rest. You ever notice how much the Bible talks about rest. And, and when, when we talk about the rest of God, like entering into the promise, what we're talking about is really entering the rule of God, the rule of God, meaning, meaning that, that what he says is, is, is higher and more significant than what anyone else says, that we live under his rule and his dominion and his reign. That's what it means to live in the rest of God, to be at peace with God. 
But have you ever noticed how much the Bible talks about rest? It's all over the place. Take, for instance, a really popular psalm, probably the most popular, Psalm chapter 23. Psalm 23 says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. He makes me lie down. Is that rest? That's rest. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. So what King David is saying here is that when he's flourishing in a relationship with God, that he knows that, that, that the Lord is his shepherd. He's not his own shepherd. And because of that, he doesn't lack anything. And, and, and the, the way that flourishing relationship looks like living under the rule and reign of the Lord, living in that sacred rhythm of rest, is that the Lord actually makes him lie down. The lie down in green pastures, pastures that maybe he won't see green pastures again as a sheep, right? He won't see them, but the Lord makes him lie down in the presence of his enemies, he'll go on to say. And he sees that God has provided everything for him and he can rest. Rest is all over the Bible. And it is what a flourishing relationship with the Lord looks like. The interesting thing about the whole Joshua mention here is that what you see is, is we tend to think about the Ten Commandments and be like, you know, the Big Ten, got to obey those. If you're a Christian, do everything you can. We know Jesus does it for us, but we're being conformed to his image. So we see that and we think that the law is the end of kind of the story, like just living up to the law. But, but what the scriptures zoom out for us here and they show us that the rest of God is a principle to live by far, uh, far before it's ever a command to obey. That it was the design of God. The whole reason God gave the Ten Commandments and the, I think it's the fourth that is the, the command to keep the Sabbath day, is the whole reason that he, he gave us that is to get us back to the rest that we were designed for in the garden. The whole reason. So what keeps us from rest? You could say a lot of things. You could say, um, I don't make enough money. I have to keep working. You, you might be right to some degree. I mean, there's brokenness in the way that kind of oppression makes its way through economics, right? Some people live below the poverty line and they work all the time, right? You could say my job requires too much or you could say my favorite this is my favorite, like, anti-God saying, there's just not enough hours in the week. God just messed up. He, he should have put a few more in it, right? But what keeps us from rest? What's at the end of it? It's an insufficient faith in God's word and an overconfidence in our works. That's really what the, the writer of Hebrews is getting us to. Let me reread the last two verses of that passage. He says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Like, that's still on the table for us. Not just the day of Sabbath rest that we tend to view negatively as we can't get stuff done on that day, but the promise of rest, it remains for the people of God. For whoever's entered God's rest, his rule, his, his domain, his dominion, has also rested from his works. Now that's a legal term right there, that word works, right? He's rested from his works as God did from his. And to talk about this word works, let me just ask you a kind of a big picture question. Why do we do the things that we do? Why do you do them? What's the purpose? Like zoom way out. Like whatever you've got going on this week, this month, this year, ask yourself the question, why am I doing this? Why am I putting in this amount of hours? Why did I schedule this trip? Why am I spending time with my kids over here? Why am I saving up money for this? Why do you do the things that you do? And I bet you'll find that at the very bottom of all of it, the common denominator is this. You are looking for rest. You are looking for the rest of God. 
You're looking for the rest of God. You're looking to provide an experience for your family that will give rest. You're looking to secure up enough funding for yourself and your family that you could have rest. You're looking for the rest of God. You're looking to the day, looking forward to the day you can finally be off the clock, easy and light, relaxed. Am I right? That's what we're all looking for. Church, I would propose that it's not the bad things that keep us from the rest of God, but it's the good things. It's the good things, the good works, the things that we chase, the things that we do. It's the good things that we do with good intent that we become convinced they're better than God's grace. So I just want you to let that sit for a second. Because what we do when we become, when we, when we, when we never rest, when we never step back and enjoy God's providence and his provision in our lives, what we're saying is that what I can do is better than what he can give me. We become convinced that what we're giving our lives to is of more value than what God has given his son for, okay? That's what's happening. We're saying that God got it wrong. He didn't know. Jesus didn't see the full picture. He wasn't enough. That's what's happening when we don't rest. Whatever it is we're giving our heart and life to, and it's keeping us from rest, and we're convinced that it's better than grace. That a, that a part, and, and really when he talks about works, he's talking about the nature of how our effort or our works, it's not just the works of creation that God did, but everything that you put your hand to in a given week, the work that you do, no matter what it is, the garden that you tend, no matter where God's called you, you're doing works in that garden. God's called you to do something. Where we get confused is about the nature of how our works or our effort and God's grace relate to each other, Right? And we, we see this in Genesis 3, that the creation becomes unraveled and, and there's thorns and thistles in the work that we do. There's pain in the work that we do. There's confusion in the work. But apart from Jesus redeeming us and us walking by faith in his work, our, all of our works are aimed at ultimately earning God's favor and gifts, including rest. And rest is what our hearts are looking for. And blowing through the Sabbath day for us is just one evidence of the complete dysfunction of our hearts and lack of faith. And that's really hard to hear, right? That's really hard to hear. Because some of us religiously keep a Sabbath day, but we never enter the rest of God in it. That's possible to do too, right? Because we're not living in it the way God's called us to. So how do we get back, right? Do you, do you, feel, you feel convicted now? I do. I have good news for us from the rest of Hebrews. Let's look at the return to rest from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Writer of Hebrews says this. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. If it's still ours, let's go for it. And he says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then he seems to make this pivot that doesn't make any sense from a linear kind of point of view until you really consider it. He says this. It's, a, it's probably a passage that you've used, you've kind of, you've pulled out and used to talk about how powerful God's word is. It says this, for the word of God is it's living and active. It's alive. It's not this dead book. This is the word of God, but the word of God existed before this ever did, right? Before the Gutenberg printing press ever printed a bunch of these out for you to have on your shelf, the word of God was. And it's living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. 
And it pierces through these things that can't be separated in our hearts. He says, he uses a couple examples. The division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart. They're so knit together. And no creature is hidden from his sight. This is garden language, creation language here. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. That language he's using there at the end. Do you remember how God made Adam and Eve? There's a phrase in Genesis chapter two, or or maybe it's Genesis three, where it says that they were naked and unashamed and they walked with God in the cool of the day. And the first thing that they do when sin enters the world through their unbelief and disbelief is what? They cover themselves up. Writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, you can try to cover yourself up with fig leaves all day long. Lots of good works, lots of charity, lots lots of stuff that you know, you're looking for rest, but it's all gonna come unraveled. It's all going to be exposed that the word of God is so sharp and so powerful when the spirit wields it that it's gonna cut through the, to the bottom of who you are. And so what this means for us, church, is that, is that God's word is gonna take us really deep, that, that the conviction, what we need as Christians is not less conviction, but more conviction, because more conviction will drive us to the end of ourselves. I, I think about this story of this, this pastor, famous pastor from the great, first Great Awakening. His name was George, Whit, George Whitfield. And he was, he was an incredible, phenomenal preacher. He preached to millions of people, preached thousands of sermons. And he had such a gift from God that he could, he could preach and 100,000 people literally could hear him without any amplification. I mean, he was just used mightily of God. Well, the whole way that guy came to faith was that he was, he was hanging out with some boys in Oxford, England, um, at school, and they, they started this thing called the Holy Club, this kind of discipleship group thing. And there's these two brothers, John and Charles Wesley. And these guys, like, if you thought, like, man, th- those guys are, like, holy, yeah, you, you would look at them, you would say, man, they, I don't think they ever sin, right? And so they came up with these methods of holiness, which would later become the Methodist Church, and, and, uh, and they would try to keep up with this rigorous system of trying to keep themselves pure and holy. And on one occasion, Whitfield hadn't eaten. He'd been fasting for six or seven weeks, and uh, he kind of got to the end of himself and ended up in the emergency room. He wasn't full of God's word and, and joy. He was miserable because he saw that he could never keep it. And it was there in the hospital that he was converted when he realized that he had to have grace, that he could never get there on his own. Church, that's where God wants to take you. That all your works, even though you're thinking about the work, the physical work that you do and all the things that you pursue, you're all looking for the thing that God wants to give you most, which is rest. And every single thing, they are so connected. The gospel is really good news, what Jesus has done. The gospel first invites us to rest from our hiding. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. So when God's word cuts us as we pursue him, We get to the end of it and see he cuts through our intentions, (laughs) through everything, and it's all exposed before him, just like we were in the garden. And that wasn't a problem in the garden. It's only a problem since sin entered the world. He says, well, the Lord is still the same. He's never changed. And so what we see is that God's word must cut us deep so that we can see how pointless it is to hide our sin and to make ourselves look better. It's just so pointless, he's saying, that that, that a a, a person knows how fatally flawed and hopeless they are on their own. And that a person that cries out for Jesus to rescue them in desperation, like just picture a person drowning and their hand is the only thing out of water. 
Like the Lord must take us there for, for us to actually trust him. If there's any life raft on our own, we're gonna trust it instead of him. That, that, a, that, a, that, that when Jesus rescues us from the pit of hell, he's rescuing us to find the rest of God. That's what we're being rescued for. So if you go into surgery, you know one thing, that things get better before, the things get worse before they get better. Amen? That's what happens. You get a surgery, you gotta recover, right? What happens with a Christian that's in pursuit of the rest of God is God must th let things get worse before they will get better. That, that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. I was, I was, um, there's a person uh, in, our, in our church that's just struggling with their faith and wrestling through it. And I got to be this kind of third party observer watching them wrestle with God. And it was such a beautiful thing to me because from their perspective, things were only getting worse. Where are you, God? Why are you not showing up? I'm angry with you. Your word isn't giving me any joy. I can't obey you. In their perspective, it was only getting worse. In my perspective, I know that God is taking them to a place of deeper dependence. And it's beautiful to see that happen, to see that play out. Has God been cutting you with his word lately? Has he been cutting you deeply? You're on your way to rest. Second thing that the gospel does is it invites us to rest from performing. I have a question for you. If you only had one word to describe Jesus, what would you say? Think about it for a second. How would you describe Jesus in one word? The same guy that I was telling you about earlier, Dallas Willard, the mentor of John Ortberg, was asked that question one time. You know what he said? Relaxed. Some of y'all laughed. Relaxed. Is it a joke or is it real? Was he relaxed? Let's look at a couple of examples. When it's time to launch his public ministry, we've been waiting 30 years for this thing, Jesus is unhurried and goes to the desert to pray for 40 days. Hold up, guys. I know y'all are ready for me, but I'm going to peace out for 40 days, go on a retreat, I'll be back. Right? He's unhurried. When his family tries to manipulate him in front of a crowd, he sets a boundary with his family. He takes the time out to say, no, 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 guys, it's not how this is going to work. He sets a boundary with his family. When crowds interrupt his retreat, what's he do? He patiently feeds them. When he's in a small boat on the Sea of Galilee that's caught in a life-threatening storm, what is Jesus doing? He's taking a nap. He's relaxed. When religious scholars gang up on him with trick questions, he doesn't respond in anger. He speaks the truth to them in love. While being tortured to death on the cross and before the cross, he lovingly ministers to everyone around him, even his, even his enemies. Church, Jesus was relaxed. Now, the Bible says that if you're a Christian, that you are hidden with Christ in God. That you are one with Christ, one with the Father. So how should we look at our works and responsibilities in this world, given all this? I think it's to be easy and light to be relaxed. Let me, let me close with this passage of Scripture from Matthew chapter 11. Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Now, let's, let's stop right there. This is Genesis language, labor, work, right? 
Everybody's laboring. Everybody's working for something. And what do we see in this world? That it's hard work. It's heavy. It's burdensome. It's filled with, with, with thistles and thorns like Genesis 3 says. He says, come to me. If you'll come to me, I have something to give to you. Let's go back to Isaiah 30, but they were unwilling, right? But if you come to him, he has something to give to you. He says, take my yoke, that is a work tool, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find what you've been looking for your whole life, which is rest for your soul. And he says this, here's the reason why you'll find it. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So this is work and rest language. Jesus is taking us back to the garden to show us how to experience the rest of God, the thing that we're looking for. That, that though he cuts us deep through conviction, he gives us a better way to live. He comes and he says, hey, be yoked to me. Let me teach you how to work and rest. You've got it all wrong. And a yoke is a tool that what it does is it, 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 it pairs a stronger ox with a, with a, with a weaker ox and it makes their work unified so that it's actually productive. Now, what this requires is to realize who the stronger ox is and who the weaker ox is. Church, who is the stronger ox? Jesus is the stronger ox. How many, day, how many times do you start your day thinking you're the stronger ox? And you're at odds with God, just like we've been at odds with him since the beginning of time, Jesus says, let me, let me reset your frame on this. Jesus is the stronger ox. He has to teach you how to carry the work. The work is important, but he has to teach you how to carry it. And when we are yoked to him, we get to live a relaxed, unhurried life. He doesn't say, I'm going to come and give you an easy life. He says, I'm going to give you an easy yoke. There's a difference in an easy life and an easy yoke. Some of us think that Jesus came to give us an easy life, and so we're so confused when he gives us an easy yoke instead. Who, my question to you is this, is who are you yoked to today with your work? In your pursuit of rest, the plow that you're going after with life, who are you yoked to? Because if you get into the yoke with anyone other than Jesus, you're never going to find rest. And it's the kindest thing for God to ever do to show us that. And he, is, he will relentlessly pursue his kids to break down their hard hearts to show them how they will find rest. So my question to you today is this. Will you yoke up to Jesus and let him teach you how to work and rest? Because everything that you're longing for in life is found in the rest of God. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us trust you. Father, would you give us more faith to believe that your design is what's best for us? Lord, I pray for those in this room right now that are running at a breakneck speed and there is no end in sight. Father, I pray that you would gently and lovingly let them crash in the kindest way possible so that they could see how much you love them and what you want to give to them. Myself included, Lord, we need your rest. We need your rule and your reign. Father, I pray for those that are just sleepless and weary in this room. 
that when they see Jesus napping in that boat in the Gospels, that their hearts would be comforted, not judgmental. Jesus, why aren't you working more? Soften us, Jesus. Make us more like you. Teach us to trust and give us that that, that easy yoke, that light burden, because we need it now more than ever. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.